0: All right, so we're in Hebrews chapter 8, and I'm sure you guys know already the background and, you know, the intended audience and uh, what's going on there. But it's, good, it's a good reminder, you know, these are Hebrew Jewish believers. Uh, they're tempted to walk away from the faith because of pr- pressure, persecution, you know, things are going on. Um, And uh, the author is making very good points on why they should continue on and not draw back. Hebrews chapter 8 is this, really it's the the ending of an argument or a point that he's making in chapter 7 about the priesthood where he's comparing Melchizedek and and Jesus. Um, And so he's making this, it's really a long point that he's making and then the tail end of it kind of comes into chapter 8. And then chapter 8 kind of transitions into the next point that he's going to make, which is going to be the likeness and resemblance of the temple and all the things used in the temple and the order of worship and how all those things point to Christ and, and are, are the shadow of the real things to come. And so it's kind of an interesting chapter because it's really, uh, it's really only two, th- two main themes in here. And you can draw out more, but there's really only two that I see. <clears throat> and so um, it's a little difficult for me to get a lot of material, but I, I feel like I have a lot more questions. And so um, I would really like for us to engage and talk about the things that we've been learning in Hebrews, not only in this chapter, but in the ones that we've already gone through. And I'm gonna go ahead and start us off with a question. I'll go ahead and I'm gonna read the first few verses. Chapter eight, uh, we'll see where I stop. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So I'm going to open this up with a question. Um, and it, it, it seems fairly obvious to some of us, but maybe some of us, maybe not. So I would like to hear from you guys. Why is it important that Jesus is a high priest or our high priest? And what if somebody came to you and you were to say, I I don't care about the whole high priest stuff. I just know Jesus is my Savior. I mean, what kind of conversation would you have with somebody who didn't see the importance of Jesus' high priest office?
1: I, I can't remember exactly where it says, that he continually makes intercession for us. And that's as, as our, our high priest because we continually need intercession. Amen. We, even though we are saved by grace, we are still embodied in sinful flesh and we need him as our high priest to make that intercession for us.
0: Amen, that's a good one. Any other thoughts on that? No? Is it important that Jesus is our High Priest? I would, say, I would say it's very important, right? OK, Christ's priesthood is how we are saved, correct? It's because Christ is our priest and our sacrifice that there is salvation to be given to anyone. If not for that, then there's no Christianity. There's no salvation. Um, another important reason, which kind of same thing, because of the fall, we don't have access to God. We are, because of the fall of man, we have been cut off from God. There is no communion, no, no relationship. It was all, in the Old Testament, it was all very distant. And now because, because of Christ's priesthood and sacrifice, we can enter into the Holy of Holies with him. Like I said, we are seated with him in heavenly places. <clears throat> and so I think Christ's priesthood is very important. I think it is the message of Christianity. And in fact, this, I'll go into what I have written. The priesthood of Christ is the message of Christianity. Without it, there's no salvation. For God says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins, Hebrews nine twenty-two. The whole service of sacrifice in the Old Testament, from the erecting to, of the tent to the making of the utensils to the sacrifice and the entering in of the high priest to make atonement, is all looking forward to the one who would come and who was a true spotless lamb and the true sacrifice and the true high priest, who entered into the true tent, which is heaven, and stands in the Holy of Holies, interceding for us to God at his right hand. And I think it's somewhere around, um, around here, he's making a transition. The author of Hebrews is starting to make the point that everything involved in the Old Covenant worship is a shadow of things to come which will go on through chapter 9 and into chapter 10. Here he makes a solid case for the futility of trusting in the shadows when the real thing has arrived and shows clearly how perfectly this one man, Christ Jesus, fit all the roles and examples is given in the Old Covenant through the ceremonial laws. Now, if you read through the book of Leviticus or in Deuteronomy, any of them, and you read through the laws, they're all very tedious and monotonous. It's a bunch of little things that you have to do and get right. And um, actually, it's not in, I thought it was in Scripture, but it's not. It's actually Jewish tradition um, that says, they used to tie a rope to the high priest who would go back to the Holy of Holies, which is where the glory of God would have been, And they used to tie a rope to him because you had to do all these little things to be able to go back there and not die. If you walked back there and you forgot one little step, God would strike them dead. And so they would tie a rope to him. And then I imagine you're going back there trembling. You don't know. Maybe you missed something. You know, you get back there and God just may strike you dead. And I I think, um, man, how, how awesome is it that we have Christ Jesus to enter in with no trembling with the utmost confidence, right? <clears throat> I mean, how can you look at that and say that's that's better than than you know Christ being this high priest and, and he's the one who goes and appears before God for me instead of a uh, trembling man? Um, but yeah, also you know you have all these different offices and all you know everything about the old the old uh, covenant ceremonial laws was. Uh, it was pointing ultimately to Christ's sacrifice and his, his interceding for us. And you can, you can look at it and literally everything points to Christ and his sacrifice. And so you have all these, all these utensils and you have all these different you know, people playing different roles. You have the high priest, you have the regular priest. And this man, Christ Jesus, comes and he fits all of those roles. One person, one man fits all of those roles. I think that's very important. Is there, okay, I'm gonna have a question. Um, uh, I think I want to talk about this a little bit more. Um, so, so the point of what he's saying here, right, is like ultimately they're trusting in their ceremonial laws. That's, that's the issue that the Hebrews that he's speaking to, not just these Hebrews, but all other Jewish believers, the temptation that they would have, is that they're actually thinking that the ceremony that they're going through, pre- presenting the sacrifice, is actually doing something for them, when in, when in reality it's not. See, they're, they're not realizing that, that these things were just given to be observed until the one that, who would come will, you know, does come. Um, they think this is it. And so that this leads me into my next question Is there anything for us in the New Covenant that can be trusted instead of Christ that's similar to the ceremonial laws? You know, this may may seem a little difficult, but I'm asking, like, in in Christendom, in Christianity, like, in church, is there things that we can do that's going to be kind of similar to the ceremonial laws that we might trust in instead of Christ? Anyone want to chime in?
2: Oh, okay, sometimes one of, one of the things that you hear in Christian circles a lot is, is that people set, rely on the fact that, well, I made a profession of faith, or I said, a, I said some words, or I walked the aisle, or something like that, and they, they think, that's it, I did it, this, that was something that saved me. That's one of the things that people get mixed up sometimes, that just the outward behavior is, is evidence of a changed heart.
0: That's a good one. Very much like the sinner's prayer, right? I've said that prayer, I did that, done that.
3: Yeah, Craig kind of already said it, but you can trust in a whole lot of things to to give you credence with God. You can even serving Him, ministering to Him, you can trust in that. And, uh, you know, the the list could be endless. We have to check why we're doing what we're doing and uh, not trusting in that. And again, once you're... Once you've made that profession that you, that Jesus is Lord, and you know that he has been raised from the dead, you embrace it. um, It isn't about that anymore. It's just checking your motive from that point on, I think.
0: Yeah. That's a good point.
4: Okay, so... Having grown up in the Bay Area, going to Catholic school, you um, had to be baptized in order to go to the school, for Catholic. And I wasn't old enough to even make that choice, so I was baptized, I guess, Catholic Christian. So within the Catholic Church, there's um, a lot of ceremonial stuff like confession, which is supposed to take the place of the Lord which is inappropriate because the father, Al, who you're not supposed to be calling Al's father, cannot forgive your sins with saying a few Hail Marys and our father. Um, various things, worshipping the pope um, within Catholic Catholicism type of Christian. Um, Some of those things within the Catholic Church are, um, I guess, intended to be substitute for the Lord.
0: That's a good point. That's a really good point.
4: I just wanted to say my
3: daddy was a preacher.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a common one, isn't it? I grew up in the church, right? Or I, I, just, I go to church. I go to church every Sunday, right? That's enough. I pay my tithes. See what I have here. Sinner's prayer, coming to church, serving in the church, giving tithes, prayer and Bible reading. Now, this may seem kind of strict, but, I mean, the Puritans were really, they, they really cut with a fine razor. And they would even go as far as to say, you, you can go through the motions and look identical to a believer. But be trusting in your own works instead of Christ. And so there, I'm sure there are some people who sit there and read their Bibles for hours and pray and come to church, and they look like the best Christian, but the difference is the heart. They're trusting in everything they're doing as giving them merit with God, when in all actuality, it's, they're, they're, they're not right with him. I mean, if that's what your hope is and it's never corrected, uh, I, would be, I would be afraid. Uh, and that, um, that comment about the Catholic church school leads me to another question I'm gonna throw out there. I, I wasn't sure about this until that comment. But you know, what are some false religions, right, that do the same thing, that are trusting in these ceremonial laws? I mean, there's a lot of false, you'd probably say all of them, I and mean, you'd be right. But I mean, is, Is there any sustenance in false religions or is it all trusting works?
1: Particularly in the South, there is a huge group of um, Pentecostal churches that believe unless you have been baptized in Jesus' name only, in fact, they kind of call them that. They call them the Jesus only's or the, you know, the oneness, yeah. oneness people. And I, I was visited by a neighbor who told me that, she came to tell me that unless I was baptized in Jesus name only, that I was going to hell. And when she left, she said, well, I, I'm, I'm gonna brush my feet off when I leave your house because, <laughs> Uh, you, you're, you're not you know you're rejecting the gospel and I couldn't convince her of anything and she couldn't convince me but I mean that right there tells me that she is trusting something other than Jesus
0: <laughs> yeah I think what you're talking about I've had a few run-ins with that group it's also known as Apostolic um, Pentecostals or oneness Pentecostals, they do not believe in the Trinity. And they believe that you have to be baptized or you are not saved. And I have spoke with uh, a man that I know who's part of the, the church, and, and it's just like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witness, they're so stubborn, and you really have to reason with them. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Now, speaking about kind of my last question about, you know, the things in the church, our worship service, how those things can be misused, these things are good if used properly and understood to be a demonstration of faith and a changed heart, not the means of receiving atonement. The true worshipers would have known that another was coming Though they didn't have the full knowledge of him, they knew that God had promised to send one to bruise the head of the serpent. They would have understood that they were not able to perform all things written in the law like the Lord tells them in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4. Do not say in your heart it is because of your righteousness when they were going to possess the land, which is a shadow of eternal life. And they would have known they needed a substitute that was far above what they were offering, as it says in Psalm 51:16 and verse 17, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. And in Hosea 6, 6, it says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. And Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices beneath the flesh. For the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers and command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this command I gave them, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people." And then 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. So we see, you know, it it wasn't about the sacrifice. It it had nothing really to do with that. It was it was their obedience that was the issue. You know, um, this leads me to a point. An apologist that I like, his daughter ended up kind of falling away from the faith. And when I when I investigated, I found out it was because of an argument that that she couldn't figure out. And basically, the argument goes like this. She said because God commanded all these ceremonial laws in the Old Testament, like, you know, you can't work on the Sabbath day and, 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 and many other things, um, and because God, because morality is absolute, then those commandments should still be binding on us today. Because if not, then morality is not absolute. And the argument, I mean, it, soo- it sounds like she has something um, but when you really look into it, you find the first, the, the first flaws, her not understanding uh, the morality of the Bible, we have the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, which is the moral law, and then there are ceremonial laws. There's difference. The ceremonial laws are, are not necessarily morally binding, like the Decalogue would be. The Decalogue is, is, is an illustration of God. The ceremonial laws was an ordained means for them to worship and be able to have relationship and communion with God and um, and then you see like in the verse that I read in uh, Jeremiah where it says it says God says I didn't command them about burnt offerings I said obey my voice that was the most important thing so at that point it doesn't matter what he tells you to do he can tell you to jump 15 feet in the air It's you're obeying the voice of the Lord. It's not a question of morality. It's a question of, are you loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And that's what it really boils down to. Um, So I just thought I'd throw that out there. I thought that was interesting. Um, From these passages that I just read, we see the offerings and sacrifices were not as important to God as the heart and obedience of faith. The people of Israel became so attached to the rituals that they thought they had merit before God, not realizing that their heart was wicked, even in the performance of these duties. This is a result of the fall of man. We are quick to put other things in the place of God. We are quick to worship and serve the creator or the, the creature rather than the creator." Puritan Jonathan Edwards, who had a love for biology, realized that all things created pointed to God. He's seen the likeness of God in the sun, um, whose light shining on the earth gives life to all organisms. He said that all things created, all created things are a shadow of the greater thing and pointed to the, to one or another attribute of the divine, divine being. This might explain why we see a lot of indigenous people worshiping uh, nature or astrology. Because they are conveying a truth about the true God, but they fall short by giving they fall short by giving the glory to the created thing instead of the creator. Now all these are good if viewed properly and used to exalt God. The fact that man will settle with creation to worship does not make creation bad, but rather it exposes the heart, the truth of the heart. What are some good things that we misuse and can become idols? Not necessarily the church, but just any like anything. Like, what are some good things that we can turn into an idol?
3: I have one. Sorry. Uh, amoral issues. For example, we know sexual morality or stealing is wrong. But for example, um, you could like have a desire to, to be married, right? And um, that become an idol, or your marriage can become an idol. So sometimes people will go to cry so you can fix it up because really what they're worshiping is the marriage set of the person who created a marriage itself.
0: Yeah, that's a good one. Food, I think that's a big one for. Yeah, a I have lot that problem. A lot of us, especially in the holidays after the holiday season.
2: food and drink, as I saw my brother saluting with his cup there, but... <laughs> but yeah, Pete's on him. Uh but, but it is amazing, our leisure. I mean, God has made good things, and he, he wants to bless us, right? He gives us these great gifts to enjoy, and yet, sometimes we start pursuing these great gifts of whether it's uh, you know, time away on a Tahitian island, or, 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 or some other sort of uh, entertainment, uh, that's nothing wrong with it like James was saying. I mean it's it's not morally one way or the other, but then we start we start looking at that more than the creator.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> Anybody else? There's really a lot of things we can we can say, right? <clears throat> any other comments? Not just for this question, but any other comments or anything? anything
2: on what you covered? I just wanted to go back. It really struck me when you mentioned that too, about the, uh, the means to worship. I mean, if you, if you really think about the whole... Basically, there was a cast of priests, right? Because they were to try and at least show the people. They were, they were set aside so they could spend more of their time trying to follow even all of these ceremonial laws. In obedience to, to the Lord they never did it perfectly but they were again they were called to be set aside so they could spend more of their time in full-time ministry to the Lord showing some obedience but even they and even the high priest had to offer sacrifices to themselves because they always couldn't do it all mm-hmm. and uh, that really just came out when you're, when you're sharing that it's like there's nothing wrong with the ceremonial laws in the context that they were met, which is just to show obedience. So that's a really good yeah. point you brought up.
4: Yeah. Are you ready for some football? <laughs> <laughs> um so this would be a personal example for me this morning. When Brett and Miss Deanna offer me the opportunity to come with them with service. And I'm working on some things right now. Um, financially, and I've been blessed by them so very much. And so my laptop died yesterday in the middle of a job application and uh, I figured out just about 1 a.m. this morning how to, what I needed to charge it and I got it fixed. So I was thinking this morning I need to finish this job application, I got clients to taxes to work on, and a bunch of assorted other things I could say, which are positive things to do. However, are they more important than me attending service this morning? So that was my decision and why I'm here. Amen.
0: I'm glad to see you here, brother. <clears throat> All right, well, I'll go ahead and... Okay. Uh, The inability of the Old Covenant to change the heart is one one weakness of the covenant. It was demanding and strict. It left no room for error or mishap. The only promise given concerning it is the curses for those who fail, and it is said in Leviticus 18, verse 5, if a person does them, he shall live by them. That's the promise. That's all you get. That's the only promise for the Old Covenant. This required perfect inward and outward obedience all the time without fail. It had no power to change the heart of the man, which is is what the true problem was. It only revealed to them that they couldn't keep any of the commandments for any length of time at all. The new covenant promised something different. So I'm going to go back to our chapter, Hebrews 8, and I'm going to read starting. I'll start in verse 9. Or, uh, I'll start verse 8, and I'll just read the rest of the chapter. It's a short chapter. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish. So I'm going to read Ezekiel. It's a very similar. So that's a Jeremiah 31 31 that he's quoting there. But I'm going to read uh, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 24 through 28. It's very similar because it's talking about the same thing. It's talking about the new covenant. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land, and I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give, gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I'll end there. So it's very similar, like I said, it's the same, talking about the same thing, it's talking about the new covenant. Which is, you know, the difference is a changed heart. God's saying like this old covenant, you know, you guys, you guys copy it, and whatever, but this new covenant is going to be this, this is the one, this is the primary covenant. If you think about it, it is the primary covenant. The old covenant was set up as a placeholder until the new covenant came. So it's not really technically the new covenant. <laughs> technically, it is the original covenant. If you want to say it that way, the whole point was for that to take place. Was for Christ to come and and intercede and die for us and intercede for us, and then so that we could have a changed heart, which is the big difference. That's that's the kicker here, is that the new worshipers now they're not just going through the motions with, with a heart that is, that is not, not desiring God. Um, the changed heart is the evidence of the atonement received. It is a proof of the perfect work of Christ as our, as our priest and sacrifice, purifying our conscience and giving us giving us a heart that love and desires God. Not only are our sins atoned for, but he also credits us with the righteousness that he himself has and elevates us to adoption as sons. He takes up residence in us, guiding us and correcting us. And part of that promise is that nothing can pluck you out of his hand. You are eternally secure in the Father's electing love. I kind of want to camp out on the thought of um, changed, having a changed heart and what that looks like. Does anybody want to comment on what, what evidences, this is actually a question I have, what um, evidences do we see of this changed heart today with us? I'm talking about like somebody who's not a Christian somebody who becomes a believer, like what are some things that you would say that has to be going on in the heart?
3: Um, Your appetite for things start to change. You know, again, it could be a clear moral thing or immoral thing, maybe like the type of music you listen to or um, the kind of scene you hung around or little small things, you know, how you spend your time uh, start to change. It becomes more important to you. Or maybe um, you kind of held it, guard it, and got irritated when somebody uh, interrupted you. So.
0: Christine?
1: Just kind of along the same lines, your desires. So your desire is going to change. Um, The Bible says that we will be hated for his namesake, so that um, just in and of itself, at its core, in your unregenerate state, that desire is not there. The desire to to please God, um, otherwise, because workings can be seen as works, so it can't be strictly on the works that are seen. Um, It's the motive of the heart, And that's going to come forth in love grace uh, mercy all of these things worked out in the sanctification process that only God does in that heart
5: yeah I think it's pretty simple do you love what God loves and do you hate what God hates do you rejoice when people are saved do you mourn over sin those are characteristic marks of a Christian.
0: That's excellent.
5: It reminds me of Colossians. I think Colossians chapter 2 in particular is interesting because Paul's talking about, um, you know, he's dealing with the heresy of asceticism, right, where people would physically hurt themselves. because they thought it made them more holy, right, by denying the flesh in a a literal, physical way. Um, So I think being in Christ, um, well, he says this, Colossians 2.23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So I think being being in Christ, the, the, the key like, one of the, the key prominent factors being in Christ is you jettison your self-righteousness. You jettison your self-made religion. You see that my works, my righteousness, my goodness is foregone, right? And I look to Christ, who is good, who has worked perfectly. And I think it's interesting, the, the point you made about the, the girl that, you know, walked away from Christianity because she saw the 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 moral implications of the law, right, and I think her issue was really that she looked at the law and said, man, I can't do it, right, which is not a bad place to be, but you need to recognize Christ did do it, right, and she failed to recognize that, so she walked away because she looked to herself, so I think being in Christ ultimately is, I'm not looking to myself anymore. I'm not looking to my goodness anymore. I'm not looking to my works anymore. I look at his works. I look at his goodness. He's done it all. It's finished, right? And I rest in that, and now I rejoice, and I worship, and I praise, and he brings about good works in my life.
0: Amen. Good point. Okay, we're getting close here. Any other burning comments? I have just one point I want to make on, on that thought, and then um, I have a couple questions that we can get to them. Um, I, I, yeah, like, what you were talking about, um, you know, it's the changed heart. And I'm trying to relate this to something I do. And I, I'm into archery. I'm into, you know, I like to hunt with a bow. And so the one thing about archery is, I mean, you can watch, I watch these pros, right? They shoot from 20 yards, probably like from here to the end of the room. And they shoot at a little dot like this. And it doesn't matter how good they are, they can't hit it every time, all the time. They do it most of the time, but eventually they miss. And, and me, of course, I'm, I'm way worse than them. So um, I, I practice, you know, and I, I do everything right. And, I, I, and the, the point is, you know, you, you keep your form right and you go through all the checks and, and you don't hit the bullseye, but you get close. Your arrows go from here and you want to see them go like that. I know I'm not going to hit the center dot. I just know I'm not. Probably never in my life, you know. But, um, but anyways, the point is, I love archery. I don't care if I hit the middle. I love to go out there and shoot my bow. I love watching the arrows fly. And and so it is like, I guess to relate that to Christianity, it's like when your heart has changed and your desires are changed, you love God, you love God's people, you love God's word. Everything about you has changed. Now, are you gonna go out there and hit the bullseye? Are you gonna walk the perfect Christian walk? No, you're not. I'm sorry, you're not. Just like with me with my bow, I'm not gonna hit the middle but I love it, so I go out there and I do it. Just like this. If you love the Lord, if you love his word and his people, man, you're going to be reading it, you're going to be trying to follow this. You're going to be saying, what can I do to be more like him? What can I do to be more like my Savior? That's going to be the bent of your heart. Are you going to be perfect? No, no, you're not. Sorry to break it to you if you think you are. Um, And I, I just want to get to a couple questions really quick. Since we are kind of midway in Hebrews, this may kind of burn into a little bit of our... Uh, transition time. But I just want to ask these questions. Since we are um, we're kind of midway through Hebrews, in what ways has Hebrews, all of it, helped you, if any? Has there any, been any profitable lessons or thoughts or anything from anybody who has been here through the book of Hebrews? Any encouragement, the way he's encouraging these people to not, to not give up, to keep going?
5: Well, I think, the, again, the idea that um, Christ is better, right, that being kind of the, the heartbeat of Hebrews, right, Christ is better. We, we can look to Christ, and we could be assured that he has indeed fulfilled all these things, done them perfectly, um, and we rest in that, I think. That's a, that's a great encouragement to me, and especially I mean, I know I've helped teach through this too, and like being able to study and, and, and look at these things. Remember that Christ is um, indeed superior, and our eternal high priest, our great high priest, um, it's a great encouragement.
3: Well, I would add to um is this that I think for the believer it orientates our existence? Let's pick back and off what you know. Sam just said, yeah, he is the better than, but then you know there's a reason for that because we were made for him. You know, a lot of non-believers, uh, and I was just talking to Christine. You know, they pull from biblical principles whether they realize or not, and they're just piecemealing individual principles or facts together and making man-made religions and stuff like that, trying to satisfy um, God put eternity in our hearts to be with him. So I think that one of the things that has helped me uh, to sit safe and, and snuggled in Christ is that I was created to worship him. So when people say, well, I want to find my place and what's my meaning and what's my calling? You, again, in Ecclesiastes to, to, to know God, to worship and know him. That's what you were specifically created for. And if you can accept that and not fight against it, yeah, now you, that's it. And no matter what you do, it is going to fall into place, whether you're you know, uh, wealthy or whatever um, position God gives you, is, your focus is, I was created to worship you and to tell others about you. And that in and of itself is fulfilling to know that God created me to know him.
0: Mm-hmm
3: and to be a community, because that comes from you, so.
4: Um, I have a friend who lived a somewhat frivolous, frivolous lifestyle, who is a very close friend of mine. And translation from a change of heart would be okay, which I told this person. So what are you going to do now? A change of heart. What are you going to do now? That's it. That's all.
0: Amen.
2: I just Cap off on one of the things studying the Hebrews really helps me be is more thankful and grateful When we realize because it points back to all of these different things that are required in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and the Old Testament uh, Ceremonial laws and everything else All of that is done. I mean if you look back at those and realize and you know you can't do them all How can you not be thankful for the fact that it, it's done now? It is all complete and I just, I, that just makes me super grateful for, for all that he's done.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, for me, it's, it's that right there. It's, it's the work of Christ, clearly explained, and you really see all the, all the little things that, you know, not just the big things, but the little things. It's, it's exalting Christ, right? That, I mean, that should capture your attention. It caught mine. But anyways, any other burning comments or questions before I close? All right, I'll go ahead and close us in prayer. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. I ask that you would bless the remainder of the service and bless the people that are here in attendance in this storm, Lord. We ask for safe travels to and from your house, O oh Lord. And we ask, Lord, that, that uh, Craig would bring your word with your anointing and with your power and your effectiveness, Lord, Lord, that you would use him as your mouthpiece. We ask all these things in your blessed name. In Jesus' name, amen. going to leave it up here?